All right. It is so good to see you again today. We, uh, so we, uh, the last couple of weeks, we've had some, uh, some really good discussion. Uh, I'm going to try to curtail it just a little bit uh, because I have a lot of stuff to talk about today. So um, we will see what happens. But just as a reminder, so we will not meet the next two Fridays. So we are on hiatus until after Thanksgiving. So um, just take note of that. And if you know somebody that's not going to be here today, uh, just be sure to remind them that we will not meet nec the next two Fridays. And then we'll pick it back up and, and we'll keep rolling. So today in the church year is St. Martin's Day. And, uh, you know, you probably already know this, uh, but uh, the, in, the, in the medieval church, one would often be named based on the closest saint's day to their baptism. So Martin Chemnitz, his birthday was two days ago, and then Martin Luther's birthday was yesterday. And so they were baptized on or nearest to St. Martin's Day. And so they got the name, their baptismal name is Mar was Martin. And, you know, I do this often with the high schoolers, and I, and I get them to look at their birth, think about their birthday, and what is the closest saint's day. And then if they know their baptism day, what's the closest saint's day to their baptism in the medieval church, that's what they would have likely been named, which could be good or horrible, right? <laughs> There's some really wild names in the medieval church, you know, in the, in the sanctoral calendar. So you could try that if you want. You know, if you know your baptismal day, you can look and see what the closest saint's day is to your baptismal day. And that's what you would have been named back in the old medieval church. So... All right, so today we are going to talk about divine love, and we're going to talk about it in terms of, of, of Peter and in John chapter 21. Now, uh, we, we all struggle. It's, it's a human condition to struggle to love, and as you know, there are different kinds of love in the, in the Greek, you know, there's... There's uh, philos, there's eros, there's agape. And, you know, so these different loves play out in slightly different ways. And we approach then our own lives and we love, we love the people around us. We love our family, we love our friends, we love our church family. Uh, and we are supposed to love our neighbor as ourself and you know, love's supposed to just be flowing all over the place, right? And, uh, but the world doesn't always love very well. And sometimes the loves are different kinds of loves. And so you have that kind of thing going on. And so what makes it difficult for us to love? Well, sometimes people feel empty or they themselves feel unloved. Uh, it's hard to love if a person doesn't know his or her identity. Insecurities can make it hard to love. It's hard to love if we're distrustful of others. And you know, you think about children. Children, you know, maybe this is more of a question, but would you say it's easier for children to love than adults? Yeah, what, what creates that dynamic? Innocence. Yeah, right? There's the trust, there's a trustfulness, right? There's an innocence. But then as we get older, what happens? We get beat up. Yeah, we get beat up, we get hurt. You know, we experience all the times where it would have been nice to have been loved, but we don't get it, right? Something else happens. Uh, or love, uh, you know, love is used as a mask for uh, people 
and their own uh, pursuits, right? So it, as, as we get older, it gets harder to love in some ways, humanly speaking, right? Uh, our pain can also hinder, you know, if, if we have our own pain, uh, we focus on, on that pain. And so it's, it's hard to kind of reach out and, and love. So we come bearing in one level or another our own trauma from life. And we've learned from our sins and the sins of others to be guarded. And so then that brings us to the scriptures. And there's all kinds of talk about love in the scriptures. But now, so my son Sam was looking at this handout the other night because I was, I was looking at it at home. And he, he looks at the first page and he says, well, that's kind of interesting, Dad. He's like, how are you going to weave overconfidence bias into this? <laughs> and I said, that's a really good question, Sam. And uh, so overconfidence bias. Uh, I was thinking about overconfidence bias because uh, our study today is about Peter. And Peter was a confident human being. He was a confident apostle. And we're going to talk about the ways in which he was confident. But look at this. This is just an interesting little uh, graphic. Yeah. So this was from a Charles Schwab study done last year, November 3rd of last year. And I put the uh, website link on the next page if you want to type it in and read it. And the overconfidence bias is huge in, in America. And so it says at a glance, head or heart, overconfidence bias is cognitive. It describes people's tendency to overestimate their abilities. So who has over, this is so interesting to me, right? Everything's like generational these days, but who has overconfidence bias? So, okay, advisors say millennials, 66% overconfidence bias. Generation X, that's me. Do I have any other Gen, Gen Xers in here? Am I the only? Okay, there we go. All right, one other Gen Xer. All right, so we have a 34% overconfidence bias, okay? Baby boomers, 23%. So it's going down, okay? And then the silent generation, 21% overconfidence bias, okay? But now here's kind of the funny part, all right? The big problem, thinking you're better than average may fuel risky decisions. Is anybody a risk taker in here? Gonna own that? <laughs> Nobody's gonna raise their hand now. Risk taker? Who are you talking about? Yeah. But now this is kind of funny because I, you know, I do rib my mother-in-law all the time about being a horrible driver, and she insists she's a great driver. She's a terrible driver, and I know if she listens to this, I'll tell you, mother-in-law, you are a bad driver, but, you know, but 75% of Americans think they're better than average drivers. There you go. And then 65% of Americans think they have above average intelligence. <laughs> so we're all smarter than everybody else, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, so here's the point about all of this is we're in good company when we talk about Peter. That's my point, okay? So... Peter was confident. So if you turn to the next page, here's what we know about Peter. For a good long while, Peter was the leader of the 12 disciples. He was the man. Jesus names Peter. He says, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Okay? And so you know, he's a rock, or, you know, his confession is the rock that builds the church, is, you know, what we Lutherans say. But Peter often took initiative 
in, in the arrangement to do different things. He took the initiative to co-opt a replacement for Judas Iscariot. He was the one that said, hey, the scriptures say this, you know, so we got to get a successor. Now, you know, the funny thing about uh, the successor to Judas, who was Matthias, right? Was it Matthias? So Matthias, we never hear another word about him after he get, you know, as re replaces Judas. And there have been some theories about this that, you know, the Lord really wasn't as concerned about a successor for Judas as the 12 were. Because the 12 were, a, they were a thing, you know. They were, they were called the 12 even when there was only 11, you know. So it was a designation. Uh, so Peter, you know, some, some scholars have said, and, and I'm, I kind of tend to agree with this, that it was really Paul who becomes the one that replaces uh, Judas. But to maintain order, Peter wanted the 12th to, you know, to be replaced. So Peter stood up immediately after Pentecost and began preaching in Acts chapter 2. So he takes the lead on that. So he's a good leader. Why this happened, that he became leader, may be seen in the fact that he was the first to see the risen Christ. As it is said in Luke 24, the Lord has risen indeed, they reported on the evening of the first day, and has appeared to Simon. So the fact that he was named is important. And then also 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter, uh, there is mention made. Let's see here. You can go to this, or you can just listen if you want. But in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered, this is Paul speaking, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. So, you know, Peter's part of the Twelve, but he's mentioned first and then the Twelve are mentioned. So that's important. You know, that shows that Peter was a go-getter. Then in Acts chapter 3, when the lame man was healed at the beautiful gate, it is Peter who addresses the crowd. Then when Peter and John were arrested for causing a disturbance, it is Peter who makes the speech for the defense before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. Then you have in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira bring the apostles part of the proceeds from the sale of their land, pretending to hand over the whole amount, it is at Peter's rebuke that they fall down dead. So there's some power there too, huh? Peter's prestige was such that people believed that his very shadow would cure the sick. Hard to be humble if your shadow can cure the sick, right? <laughs> Needs a lot of grace, you know. In Acts chapter 8, verses 15 to 25, Peter is the one who rebukes Simon Magus for his magic. Then in Acts chapter 10, Verses 34 to 48, Peter initiates a Pentecost to the Gentiles. And this is interesting, by the way. This is kind of a footnote, but, you know, maybe part of a, a later study that we do. In the book of Acts, there are like three different Pentecosts which, you know, I'll talk about this maybe uh, some other time. Oops, I'm in 1 Corinthians. Let me go back to Acts. So you can jot this down and maybe we'll study this sometime. But 
You know, the, the opening of the book of Acts has Jesus actually telling us that in, so this is, would be in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus, Jesus provides the outline for the book of Acts. So he says, Jesus himself says at the ascension, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And it's beautiful because the book of Acts is broken up in this way. And there are three Pentecosts then in Acts. Acts 2 verses 1 and following uh, goes to the Jews, the Hellenists. Acts chapter 8 verses 4 and following is a Pentecost to Samaria. And then Acts 10:34 and following is a Pentecost to the Gentiles. So it's beautiful how Luke structures Acts, but that would be a good study for another time. So, you know, and you can also probably remember in the Gospels that Jesus, in one of his passion predictions, you know, he says, I'm going to die, they're going to they're beat me and arrest me, and they're going to, you know, kill me. And what do the, the disciples do? But they start to argue about who's the greatest. You know, what's going on there is, you know, they take it to heart that, oh, Jesus isn't going to be with us forever, so we need a leader. And who's that going to be, by the way? You know, we need, we need somebody that can actually lead this, you know, this surly group, you know. And so they were trying to figure out who it was. Also, keep in mind in, in all of this that Peter, James, and John always got to see things that the other disciples didn't get to see. So, you know, so you have the 12, and then you have Peter, James, and John, and then you have Peter. So there's a lot going on. And then as I, when I talked about James, the, the so-called brother of Jesus, James at some point takes over the leadership because when you get into Acts and you have the first synodical council, and they have to make a decision about circumcision and food offered to idols and all this, right? Can they eat meat and all this stuff? It's James who stands up and makes the final decree. So the power shifts a little bit. But so, you know, it's true that with Peter, he was a strong, strong individual. But he also had his weaknesses. He had his struggles. And so if you turn to page three of the handout, let's take a look at the struggles for just a little bit. So in Galatians 2, let's go there. In Galatians 2, verse 11 and following, this is a, a fabulous chapter because of all the things that are in here, but, well, here, this is kind of interesting, and, and this does kind of play into a little bit of the, the leadership dynamics of the church. So if you go back to verse seven, so we're in Galatians two, start at verse seven. It says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. I mean, this is, there have been journal articles written on this particular topic. And, you know, I don't want to press this too hard, but it is kind of interesting that in 
verse 9 when it says that uh, I went to James, Cephas, and John who seemed to be pillars. The, the Greek word for appear or seem is dakeo. And it's the word that we get for docetists. So the docetists were Gnostics. And the docetists, they didn't believe that Jesus really suffered and died for the sins of the world. He only appeared to suffer and die for the sins of the world. So like if we were to put it in modern terms, the docetists said that Jesus was like a hologram on the cross, you know, where, you know, you just kind of see this image and it looks real, but it's not really real kind of thing. So this word dakeo means like mirage. So isn't that interesting? So Paul, he has to go and get the right hand of fellowship from Peter, James, and John who appeared to be pillars. So it's, it's one of these things where scholars wonder, is Paul doing like a little tongue-in-cheek thing where he's saying, I had to go make it right with these guys, but it's no big deal to me, but I had to go kind of thing. It was just very interesting how that, how that plays out. I think what Paul is getting at is he had his work to do, but he still had to make it all good with Peter, James, and John, which is to say they held a pos- positions of authority in the church. So it's very interesting. So in verse 11 then, and maybe this is why he, he says it the way he does in those verses, because in verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So he, Paul has to rebuke Peter. So, you know, you think about all the great things that Peter did, and, and, I, and I want to emphasize, Peter did do a lot of great things. And he was a go-getter, and that was a really good thing that he was a go-getter, because look at the times that he preached, and look at the baptisms that were done, and all the good things that came out of Peter's work. But he still had his weaknesses. And so now go to Mark chapter 14. And so the point to this is, it's leading us up to John 21. But let's first go to Mark 14. And... I think it would be good to start at verse 26. Okay. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, 
if I must die with you, I will not die, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. So there it is, right? This, this really shows you the character of Peter. He's standing there listening to this and he has a lot of vigor and he's going to go after him, right? Does, isn't he the one that cuts the ear off of the Roman soldier, Malchus? So you see, I mean, he is ready. I mean, you're not going to hold back Peter, you know? And, and this comes out in the book of Acts. You are not going to hold him back. But, but Galatians 2, you know, in the face of the, the Pharisaical sect that was there, you know, forcing circumcision, Peter gets a little nervous and he's thinking about his life and he's, you know, and this is what often happens, right? He's like, boy, if they kill me now, I won't be able to preach the gospel anymore. I think I'm just going to come over here and sit quietly and let that all pass by. And then, right? And so he's just, you know, you justify yourself. You're like, then I can keep doing what I'm doing. I'll just stay safe over here for a little while, you know. But here he's like, I'll die with you. Well, so let's read on. So then in verse 32 of Mark 14, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, so there it is, Peter, James, and John again. They get to go a little further than the rest of them. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death, Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, not yet I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So, poor Peter. You know, Peter's being called out here. There's two other guys that are sound asleep, you know, snoring, sleeping like logs. And, but it's Peter that gets called out. Why? You know, these are some of the great questions about the Gospels, like, what's going on in between the lines? But, you know, maybe, I wonder, perhaps, perhaps it's because Peter has such a central role later on. Maybe it's because he is a go-getter and has that personality of, you're not going to hold me back, that it helps for us to see that even sometimes the strongest still need grace, right? We, we need every, and, you know, in fact, it is to lead us to see that everyone who strong or timid need the grace of God from beginning to end. It is the strength and the mercy and the love of Jesus that carries us all. And that is a great comfort. Because no matter if you're a person like Peter or if you're timid like Mark, we all have our struggles. And the struggles were different for Peter than they were for Mark, but we all need his grace. 
Yes. He was oldest. He was oldest? Yeah, he was oldest on the crew. Was he the oldest? I mean, I guess I haven't really thought about that, but maybe he was. Yeah. So he was the elder of the group, right, is what you're saying. Yeah, very interesting. Well, that could have something to do with it, perhaps. Yeah, that, that could have something to do with it. Um, go to Mark 8, then, and then we'll go to John. Mark eight twenty seven to 38. And, of course, we all know this, right? This is... So Mark 8, verse 27... And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now that is a gutsy thing to do, right? I mean, this if you're unsure about Peter's character, this really says it all. I mean, he is an organizational leader, you know? I mean, he is going to get everybody in line and say, this is the way forward. Even to the point of the, telling the Savior, this is how it's going to go, <laughs> you know? So, you know, if you're one of those people don't feel bad. You're in good company, okay? So, so what does he say? So turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So Jesus, think about turning and seeing his disciples. So here it is. Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus is looking at the other disciples and how they reacted. And he's like, I'm going to have to straighten this out. <laughs> So that's what he does. So he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then the rest follows. Um, so now let's go to John chapter 21 and let's look at the contours of love. So if you are one of those people that often finds love to be harder than, than what it should be, hopefully this will be comforting. And I'm going to put this on the board because I don't want to forget, I don't want to forget to mention this. This Greek concept, it's translated as useful, um, kind in the English Standard Version, I believe, but... Um, or easy, or something like that, but we'll get to it. All right, so John chapter 21. So Peter, you know, here's what, here's what can happen, and I think we see this with Peter. Peter is one of those kinds of people that if he's invested in something, he goes 100%. Do we have anybody like that in here? Like, if you're like, you know, you're supercharged, and you're like, I'm in, I am all in, and then you just take off. But if, if you get discouraged, then you're like 100% out, right? One of those 100% in or 100% out. And I'm not saying that that's exactly what's going on with Peter, but in John chapter 21, it's, after the resurrection, and what does Peter decide to go back and do after the resurrection? Go fishing. So see, at the beginning of the Gospels, Jesus says, hey, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And Peter's like, all right, I'm all in. This fishing business is hard, 
and I didn't catch anything and it's been brutal. Let's go catch, let's go catch people with the gospel net. That sounds good. And so he gains steam for those years with Jesus and then Jesus dies, he's resurrected. And in a way, this is the way I interpret it, it's like Peter gets to a point and he's like, huh, nothing's gonna be the same now. You know, the, band's, the band broke up, right? It's great when the band is together and everybody's on tour and we're having a party and life's great, right? But now the band broke up, so I guess I gotta go back to work. That's kind of what's the way I see it with Peter. So when we look at this chapter, let's see, I've got oh, maybe 20 minutes. Okay, so we're gonna skip the first part, but just to kind of recap, in verse one, Jesus reveals himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And there, as I said, Simon Peter goes fishing. Same thing, they caught nothing. Just like what had happened at the beginning. And day is breaking. Jesus stands on the shore. The disciples don't know that it's Jesus. Jesus says, hey, children, do you not have any fish over there? They said, no. And he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat. You'll find some. And then it, it all happens. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, says to Peter, it is the Lord. And then here's Peter. He's the go-getter. So what does he do? He puts, yeah, he puts on his outer garment, throws himself into the sea, and drags a net full of fish, and then they get on land, and then here's Jesus with some fish. Bring some of the fish that you just caught. Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153. And by the way, why 153? Have I ever told you this before? So in the, in the ancient annals of the different kinds of fish that they knew existed, so the ancient annals of like documenting how many different kinds of fish, in those days there were 153 different kinds of fish. Okay, so the idea behind this is the gospel net catches one of every kind, which is synonymous with the Great Commission that it, the gospel goes out to all nations, goes everywhere, okay? So it's the repeat, in a way, it's a syn synonymous to, you know, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it's a reminder to Peter that this, this isn't done. The band's not breaking up. We're going on tour again and it's going to be great. And so then they have breakfast. Now, this is where we get to the heart of our study for today. So you have Jesus and Peter. So they had breakfast. And we are told in verse 14 that this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so in verse 15, let's read this. And I know you know this, but let's read it and then we'll kind of walk through it. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show, but what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And there's the text. Now, some of you may already know this from past studies, some may not, but there's a reason that Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? And the Greek bears it out. So the first time in verse 15, do you love me? Jesus says, do you love me? He uses the word agape. And Peter now, after the resurrection, is a little sobered by everything that has happened. And so, you know, the old Peter would have said, oh yeah, I agape you, I got your back, right? Like back before with the passion prediction. But now, he's a little more reflective. Peter says, I phileo you, which is a friend love, a brotherly love. Philadelphia, phila, comes from this. And so Jesus says, you know, feed my lambs. And then a second time, so this is verse 16. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And again, Jesus uses the word agape. And again, Peter says, you know I phileo you. So it's like a test. You know, Peter and Jesus have a very close relationship and they've had these occurrences where Jesus had to rebuke Peter and say, get behind me, Satan, and you know, the contours of that relationship are such that Peter's getting ready to go out and he's going to lead the church. And it takes a certain amount of maturity and growth at this point. And so then it gets to the third time in verse 17. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then it says that Peter was grieved that he said to him a third time, do you love me? The reason why he's grieved is because now there is this honest recognition that the best that Peter can do at this point in time is the phileo kind of love. So this third time when Jesus says, do you love me? He says, do you phileo me? So in between the lines, what he's saying is, can you at least phileo me for now? And that's why Peter is grieved. Because he knows I'm weak. But this is really the, the kind of moments in our spiritual journey where we do grow and we, we begin to have a, a, a greater mature, maturity of the faith. It's, it's in these honest moments where we're like, yeah, I'm weak. And this is so hard for Christians. You know, I've talked about this before, but so much of the Christian perspective not Lutheran so much, but we certainly experience it ourselves, but there's this Christian notion that if I doubt, if I'm weak, then I ask myself, am I really saved? Or am I just teasing myself, fooling myself? But it's, it's in these moments where the growth really starts to happen. And 
You know, we don't have time today to look at it, but perhaps another time. Romans 7 and Romans 8, right? The good that I want to do, I do not do. The evil I hate, that's what I do. That's what I practice. You know, those are these, those honest moments of the faith where we look at ourselves truly as we are. And, but that's when Jesus does his greatest work. So when you draw to the altar and you feel your weaknesses, those aren't the times to back away and say, <clears throat> like Lutherans tend to do, oh, I don't know, I, I kind of doubt. Should I go take communion? Yeah, you should go take communion precisely because you're weak, you know? And so that is so important. And so then he says, follow me. So this goes back to the, the Mark 8 passage. Come after me. You know, the, the Greek is, is really particular. Ha pisomu. This is all over in, in Mark's gospel. Ha pisomu. Come after me, come behind me. So Jesus leads, we follow. And in Mark 8, Peter wants to lead. And that's why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And then he who would deny himself, come after me. Hapisomu, come follow me. And so that's what he's telling Peter. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Go to Second uh, Peter 1, which I find myself always, I don't know why, but I am just stuck on Second Peter 1. The more I look at it, the greater it becomes to me. But I would say this, in the, in the New Testament, the, the different apostles just like, uh, like human beings, you know, they would gravitate towards certain other apostles and they would hang together and like Paul and Barnabas and, you know, uh, you'd have Peter and you'd have Luke. And um, in Second in Peter 1, Peter, he gives us an order to everything. So I've talked to you about this, but in second, let's just look at it and then I, I'll comment. In 2 Peter 1, starting at verse 3, it says, His, His being Jesus, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So, he's, right now he's talking about Jesus. And he's talking about Jesus' glory and excellence, which in Greek are doxa and arete. And then what he does is he says, He's called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So he leads us from the glory and I like to translate this word as virtue because it's a chief virtue. Like Aristotle says that this virtue is the chief virtue that originates in the human being. But Peter's saying that this chief virtue must first originate in Jesus. Okay, so that's important. Then he says that we may become partakers of the divine nature. And this is where, as I've showed you before, you have this Greek construction where you have divine nature on the outside 
And this word partakers is the word for fellowship, which is used for communion fellowship. So you think about the holy assembly, right? So your life around the altar is right here and you're encapsulated by the divine nature. So you, it starts off with the glory and the virtue of Jesus, which leads to participating in this divine nature. And then what does Peter do? But then he says in verse five and following, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Now look at this. What he does is he rattles off for us virtues. So this one would be faith, pistis. The second one would be arete, which is virtue, which is right there. And then the third one is gnosis, which is divine knowledge. And then the fourth one is egkretion, which is self-control. And then the fifth one is hupomone, which is patient endurance. And then the sixth one is eusebion, which is like godliness, but it carries with it, the word is used for worship. And then the seventh is Philadelphia. And then the eighth is agape, divine love. Now, look at this. This is what I think. I think that what happens in John chapter 21 becomes central to the theology of St. Peter. And I think it, it becomes the hub of everything that he's about. And I think in 2 Peter chapter 1, so 2 Peter is one of the Catholic epistles, you know, one of the general epistles. It wasn't to one church, but goes out to all. He's trying to teach the church about the way to holiness. And it's very reflective of his own situation. And so what he does is, just to recap, he starts off with Jesus, good, good Lutheran thing to do, starts off with the glory and the chief virtue which resides in Jesus. Then he leads us to divine fellowship. And then he says from this, then these things will flow. And he has faith, that chief virtue which is uh, found in Jesus can now be found in us. Divine knowledge, self-control, which this is, a, this is a spiritual designation. Self-control isn't about just like watching stuff with the body. This is like the way one lives. It, it, it carries, egkretion carries with it uh, reflection you know, holy reflection. You know, how do we respond when things come at us? So it's, it's very comprehensive. Hupamone, patient endurance in the face of trouble. Eusebion, godliness. And sebomai is a word for actual worship. So this is a tangible kind of godliness, not just something that's a figment of the mind. And then look, Philadelphia. So that was the love that he was able to at least embrace with Jesus in John 21, fill us. And then what is the end but agape, the divine love? In the order 
Agape is the hardest to get, right? It's the, it's the one to attain. Now, look at this. How, there's eight. And what does the number eight usually represent for us in the church? Easter. What's that? The resurrection. Yeah, resurrection, the eighth day, the new day, right? New life. And wow. so, remember when Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished? So, when he says it is finished, in Greek, that's the telos. It's the end, the completion of all things. So, when he says it is finished, he's using that word telos. Everything is now complete. So, the fact that Peter gives, this is what I think, when Peter gives us eight, he is saying, this is completeness. And I think, this is just my own, I think that Peter, in doing it like this, is tipping his hat to John. John the Evangelist. Because John's writings are focused heavily on love. And so I think Peter is, I think there's a lot going on here. I think he's thinking about his encounter with Jesus in John chapter 21. I think he's thinking about what it is to be complete. And I think that he's thinking about his good friend John and the emphasis of agape. Because eight is completeness. Peter there you go yeah he did and that's that's the beautiful thing about our lord's work is peter ended up being martyred and so he finishes the course of faith right he you know he grew stronger and that's my encouragement for you i see that now we're out of time but my encouragement for you is that through our Lord's faithfulness and through His love for you, do not be discouraged. Because in the course of your life and your journey with Jesus, you are being changed. You go to the Eucharist, you listen to the Gospel, you listen to the preaching, you confess your sins and receive absolution. The Lord is shaping you He's shaping your soul. He's changing you. And so little by little, bit by bit, as the divine scriptures permeate you and you go and you eat and drink Christ's body and blood, he is doing this very thing in you. And so take heart and rest. Um, I didn't get to the word Christos. But in Matthew's Gospel, this is just a great example of how, how wonderful our Lord is. But, and then I'll, I'll end with this and we'll pray. But in Matthew chapter 11, he says, uh, so this is the end of Matthew chapter 11. These, you know, these well-known, very comforting words, right? Come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will refresh you. Take up my yoke upon you and learn from me. So the word for learn is, we get the word disciple from that. For I am uh, meek and humble in heart and you will find rest or refreshment for your lives. For my yoke is Christos and my burden is light. Now, my yoke... My yoke is Christos. Often it's translated as easy. I don't really like that translation because this word Christos actually means that it is useful. So here's what it means. It means um, if a creditor comes to relieve you of your debts. And what this word actually comes from is it comes from a word kraomai, which 
means that God brings his divine oracles and plants them right in your midst. So God reveals out of the darkness, God reveals out of the darkness his love for you. And so that's the connection to agape, is this kind of thing, Christos, is he brings to you what you need in your debt, right? In your, in your great need. And he relieves you. And he shines his light upon you. And he turns your life around by his divine oracles, by his speech, by his presence, by his work. And so this is what we see in John 21. Jesus comes to Peter in need, loves him, and then Peter is strengthened, and as we see towards the end, as you said, Carol, Peter grows in the faith, and the same is true for each and every one of you. The Lord is at work in your lives now and always. Let us pray. Living God, your almighty power is made known chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace, to lay hold of your promises and live forever in your presence. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace.